This is Green Street News, your weekly update on environmental health. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts, welcome back. On today's show, we're going to talk about what happens when energy independence meets public health and how big energy companies who are making lots of money fracking for natural gas and selling it overseas just don't want to hear how their activities may be putting people's lives at risk. We have a great interview with Allison Steele of the Environmental Health Project. And of course, Patty will cover all the environmental news of the week, including that train derailment and the massive toxic chemical release it triggered. That's all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, what happened this week in the world of environmental health? Any good news? You know, I'm looking for good news. Uh, okay. We're gonna, I, we're I am gonna looking try for to, good news, and I will, I will find it sometime. We're going to try to get a good news segment, because I don't want to be the bad news show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the news is the news. I news understand. is the news. Go ahead. What do right. you got? This is Inside Climate News, written by Abby Weiss, and the title is Fading Winters, Hotter Summers Make the Northeast America's Fastest Warming Region. Hmm. An analysis last year by the Washington Post found that Rhode Island and Connecticut were among the first states whose average annual temperature had warmed more than two degrees Celsius since 1895. The Post analysis also found that the New York City area, including Long Island and suburban counties in New Jersey, New York, and Connecticut, was among about half a dozen hot spots nationally where warming has already exceeded two degrees. Two degrees Celsius serves as a prominent threshold for international leaders who in the 2015 Paris Agreement committed to holding the increase in the global average temperature to well below two degrees Celsius. Well, felt like spring today for sure. And it's been the whole winter's been like this. It's been, we had one day of cold weather. I know. I was actually out in the garden pulling up some old leeks, which normally winter over pretty well. But it's been so warm that they were just slimy. I actually had to get the pitchfork out and dig out these slimy leeks. We're not eating them, are we? No, I put them in the compost. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Okay, if the current trends continue, by 2035, the average temperature of the entire Northeast region will have risen 2 degrees Celsius since the pre-industrial era, according to the Fourth National Climate Assessment. And once the global average temperature officially rises 2 degrees... Higher latitudes near the North Pole will have warmed by four or five degrees. Yeah, two degrees is kind of the benchmark, right, that we're trying to avoid. Yeah, but that's kind of where we are. So hotter winters, lack of snow. Have you seen any snow this year? No. Mm -hmm. Changing jet stream patterns and warming waters, they're all phenomena that contribute to this rapid atmospheric temperature growth. Warmer winters in mid-latitude regions produce less frozen precipitation, generating a feedback cycle that increases surface warming. When there's more snow and ice, those surfaces are reflective, and they're going to reflect sunlight back to space and reduce the temperature of the surface. But when the snow and ice is not there, then those surfaces will just absorb more sunlight and the temperature will increase. Mm The current recovery methods for these extreme events are not economically sustainable. Governments and the private sector spend money cleaning up after storms, which they could otherwise invest in renewable energy and other technologies that would reduce the carbon emissions and contribute to climate change. Okay, the only trouble with that argument is we're going to get the storms anyway. 
because you can't you can't stop what we've already created. So we're going to get the storms, and we still have to spend but the money for the renewable energy. But they're just making the point. Yeah, I, know, I get it. We're spending all it. this money cleaning up after these storms when we could actually be investing in renewable energy, non-fossil fuel energy sources, and not have this this problem. Yeah, but, but we should have we should have done this 50 years ago or 30 years ago or 20 <laughs> years ago or even 10 years ago. But we're still not doing it. Do you know the bottom line is that even if we stopped emissions completely, we will still be warming because of what's happening yeah. all across the globe. We can't do it right here and fix it right here. Nope. It has to be fixed on a global level. Okay? Yeah. That wasn't good news. Nope. What else you got? Well, this has been in the news for for a while now, and this is really important to just talk about it here. Um, This is about the Norfolk Southern Railroad train derailment that happened in Ohio. Yeah, those poor people. All right, so this was written by James Bruggers, and it is published in Inside Climate News, and the title is Derailed Train in Ohio Carried Chemical Used to Make PVC the worst of the plastics. Mm -hmm. The flames and deadly black smoke that billowed high over a small town on the Ohio and Pennsylvania border Monday were an acute reminder of a type of commonly used plastic with a particularly troublesome environmental and health record. To prevent exploding rail cars, flying shrapnel, and the uncontrolled release of killer gases, authorities vented vinyl chloride, a precursor of polyvinyl chloride, or PVC, and then burned the vinyl chloride in what officials described as a controlled manner following Friday's 50-car Norfolk Southern Railroad train derailment near East Palestine, Ohio. While the drama played out in northern Appalachia, the story actually begins with an insatiable global demand for plastic and what United Nations officials described as a, quote, triple planetary crisis of climate change, nature loss, and pollution, end quote. The versatile form of plastic that can be made to be rigid and durable for pipes or soft and flexible for products such as intravenous bags and tubing is no longer used as much as in the past in food packaging, but it's still a major building material for the construction industry, including siding and windows. Like other chemicals, PVC has its own lobbying group in Washington called the Vinyl Institute. It touts the benefits of vinyl and the vinyl industry, which it says encompasses nearly 3,000 vinyl manufacturing facilities, more than 350,000 employees, and an economic value of $54 billion. And this is it in a nutshell. We will continue to pollute our planet, okay, and everything that's on that planet because we're making money doing it. We're providing jobs and we're making money. So let me ask you, if we lived in this town in Pennsylvania, would we be drinking the water? We'd have gone long ago. I mean, already, you know, there have been huge fish kills in the waters around the area. Mm -hmm. And they've tested for a whole slew of chemicals. It's not just vinyl chloride. There's a bunch of other chemicals in those train cars as well, in those tanker cars. And, of course, you think back to the World Trade Center where the EPA came and said, oh, this is perfectly safe. And the EPA is saying that now. The EPA is saying that now, know. don't drink the water. Maybe you should drink bottled water, but maybe we'll test it. But I mean, all the surrounding waters, you know, that they get their drinking water from have all been tested. And they have found traces of all of these chemicals from that train derailment. But even more importantly, people are sick. Yeah. Their pets are dying. Yeah. yeah. Terrible. But it's all Just okay. Awful. You can go back to your house. Don't worry about it. It's not a problem, says EPA director. Okay. And we have one more, I think. 
this last one is particularly interesting to us because it's about somebody that we know well. And, and we're involved in this we're issue. We're involved in this issue big yep. time. This was written by the editorial board of EHN, which is Environmental Health News, and it is entitled, SUNY Albany Must Stop Doing Monsanto's Work. Wow. Manufactured doubt. Companies have used this time-worn tactic to stop policy and stymie public health improvements for decades. You don't need facts or expensive science to stop change. You just need to cast doubt in the public's mind. And that's what Monsanto is doing today to one of the nation's preeminent researchers on PCBs or polychlorinated biphenyls. Unfortunately, the company is being aided and abetted by the researcher's home institution, the State University of New York at Albany. This cannot stand. David Carpenter is a public health physician who has spent his career researching the impacts of pollutants on the brain, particularly PCBs and their effect on IQ. Carpenter played a major role in the creation of the School of Public Health as a partnership between the University at Albany and the New York State Department of Health. He helped establish the school's Institute for Health and the Environment. Along the way, he became a devastating expert witness for those suing Monsanto for alleged health impacts due to PCB exposure. Monsanto was the primary U.S. manufacturer of PCBs until they were banned in the U.S. in 1979. But PCBs remain prevalent in the environment today and are linked to many health effects, including cancer, reduced IQs in children, and asthma. Last year, a law firm that has represented Monsanto in pollution cases sent three public record requests to the University at Albany regarding Carpenter's service as an expert witness. Monsanto has every right to request those records. Scientists doing controversial pollution or climate change research at public institutions or with public funding have often found themselves deluged with such requests from those who object to their findings. The university's response is the issue. Carpenter says he was placed on, quote, alternative assignment in response, barred from his office and laboratory, prohibited from teaching, initially forbidden all contact with his students. In addition to leaving Carpenter's seven Ph.D. students and numerous undergraduates in the lurch, the university officials cast a pall of doubt on Carpenter, doubt that Monsanto has wasted no time exploiting. Last week, Bayer, parent company of Monsanto, filed an emergency motion in a pending case where Carpenter testified on behalf of the St. Regis Mohawk tribe who allege increased risk of cancer due to PCB exposure. According to the motion, the university's disciplinary investigation of Dr. Carpenter is critically material to the jury's determination of Dr. Carpenter's credibility and bias. So they're trying to silence David Carpenter by... They put out a rec this FOIL request, we want information about him, and then they're pretending that that in itself is a scandal that should undermine well, the credibility. They're saying that the university's disciplinary investigation, which they made up. Right, which they created. They created for the university this disciplinary investigation, and they're saying, well, this is critically, this is critically material to the jury's determination. David Carpenter has been an important part of many of the issues that we work on. He's uh, been part of conferences that we helped organize, and we are actually working with uh, a group of people to try to get this reversed. We put up a website called supportdavidcarpenter.org. I would encourage all our listeners to go and take a look at the website. There's a, a petition on there which you can sign, which we would really appreciate. Um, you know, all thinking people need to get involved here. We can't allow corporations to silence people like David Carpenter. That's exactly what they're trying to do. It's really, really important.
really yeah. important. And just a final word on this, David Carpenter himself said, it's not about me. It's about the power of Monsanto to discredit people who go up against them. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. Yep. If you're a regular listener to Green Street News, you know we often talk about the speed of business compared to the speed of science. Business moves quickly, especially with a new drug, a new product, a new process, something they believe will revolutionize the market and generate profits for the company. That's what business is about. The role of government in this scenario is to scrutinize the new thing, whatever it is, and make sure that it's safe for people. Now, we can certainly disagree about how well the agencies do their job, but at least we can agree that protecting the health and safety of the American people is what they're supposed to do. But science usually lags far behind business, and when companies come looking for approval for their new thing, it's usually well before independent scientists have had a chance to look carefully at it. By the time they do, often the thing has been approved and is making a lot of money for the company or companies involved, and naturally they want to keep going. They fight back against the scientists and researchers, and with the money they're making from the new thing, they have lots of influence with politicians. This scenario has played out hundreds of times, and it goes on today. In southwest Pennsylvania, a thick formation of black shale bedrock underlies the region, and the area has become ground zero, so to speak, for the process of fracking for natural gas. A company called Range Resources drilled the first well in 2004, and shortly thereafter, the Halliburton Company, with its patented and proprietary process of mixing sand, water, and chemicals and forcing them underground under extreme pressure to release the gas, turned the area from a quiet, pastoral landscape into a 24-7 industrial zone, with noise, lights, and plenty of traffic. But apparently no one had really thought about, much less studied, the possible impacts of fracking on public health. The early days of fracking, particularly in Southwest PA, saw a lot of activity that happened very quickly where there was a lot of opportunity for the industry to come in and really capitalize on the gas that was beneath the feet of people in Southwest PA without a lot of forethought to potential health harms. And there was far less known in the early days when policy was being made, when legislation was being put in place. But over time, more health studies have been done, more research, more anecdotal evidence about the health harms that people in these communities are experiencing has come to light. So we've learned more over the years, but EHP, Environmental Health Project's origins were really rooted in the early days of the fracking boom and the fact that there really wasn't anybody looking at the public health impacts of the boom in the industry. That's Allison Steele, Executive Director of the Environmental Health Project, a nonprofit organization based just south of Pittsburgh, not far from the heart of fracking country. The organization, known by its initials EHP, bridges the fields of scientific research and public health. What EHP started to do very early on was just go into communities and talk to people, set up monitors. Uh, we did air quality monitoring, some water monitoring as well, health surveys, and tried to see if there was any kind of connection between the certain types of activity that was going on in the extraction of gas and certain types of adverse health outcomes. And spoiler alert, we do see a, a really 
large amount of concerning adverse health outcomes in proximity to shale gas development. And that's that's not just the fracking piece, but the entire life cycle from extraction through transportation, through use, through disposal, all have aspects of really concerning health impacts tied to exposure pathways and chemicals of concern. You know, science really can't be done effectively in a vacuum. Um, And we're not a research institution per se, but we have spent much of our last 10 plus years working directly with communities to gather information and understand those impacts. Close-knit rural communities in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia have been torn apart by the debate over fracking, pitting neighbor against neighbor and brother against brother. Fracking brings immediate, if temporary, jobs to economically depressed areas. But at the same time, people are getting sick, and that complicates things. The industry, of course, is following the playbook that many industries before it have followed. Deny the science, discredit the scientists, blame the victims, and claim that many other things could be causing their health problems. Plausible deniability is a a very powerful tool. Um, It is almost impossible to say this molecule of benzene came off of this compressor station and caused this person's cancer. Very often you will hear pithy statements such as correlation does not imply causation. And and while that is true, you can't take a real life scenario and treat it like a lab experiment. What we do in public health is use epidemiological studies and those look at broad trends across a large segment of a population and look for correlation. They look for trends. People who live in proximity to well pads show a greater incidence of whether you're looking at asthma or preterm birth impacts or early mortality, things like that. You can't take one segment of the population and expose them to benzene knowingly and then take another section of the population and not do that. You can't you can't do a a causative study like you would in a lab with with cells, that you're going to dose these cells with wastewater from the Marcellus shale, and you're not going to dose these cells. And oh, look, the the cells that got the wastewater uh, developed cancer tumors. Um, you, You can't do that. So epidemiological studies are really the gold standard of public health research. And yes, while they look at trends, once you assemble such a large number as, as we now have looking at this subject, and they all point to the same conclusion that there are concerning levels of adverse health outcomes in proximity to these types of infrastructure. That's enough where policymakers, decision makers should have some pause and be asking maybe maybe asking some harder questions of the industry before deciding to build a new plant or compressor station or pipeline or something like that and really understand the public health ramifications of that piece of infrastructure and what it's going to do to their constituents 
frontline communities near fracking activities or other industrial processes that produce toxic emissions are often economically challenged and lack the resources that other wealthier communities might have to mount a fight against threats to their health or may not have access to high-quality health care. The health impacts of living near a fracking site, or really anywhere along the line of natural gas, transportation, storage, or use, can be both acute and chronic. Acute exposures can be related to very high peaks of emissions, that's um, high levels of particulate matter, high levels of volatile organic compounds. This far in to looking at this issue, we see acute impacts and, and also long-term impacts. So certainly early on in talking to members of frontline communities, we saw a lot of nausea, dizziness, nosebleeds, headaches, trouble sleeping, anxiety, um, things like that. And those are strongly correlated with living in proximity to well pads in particular, because that's what pretty much everybody was looking at. More studies being done now that you know we're a decade plus into this issue, particularly in Pennsylvania, from when the boom started until now, uh, there's really a, a wealth of public health studies that are going on and still in process and, and more studies coming out all the time. But we really do see a range of long-term impacts that are associated with chronic exposure. Certainly, I mentioned lung concerns uh, related to short-term exposures, but we see them with chronic exposures as well, worsening of lung conditions like asthma or COPD. There are cardiac issues, incidents of heart failure and uh, related hospitalizations and deaths, birth complications, incidents of preterm birth, low birth weight, um, even congenital heart defects and neural tube defects, and neurological disorders, certain types of cancers. And also it is important to note that stress, anxiety, depression, things like that are also an important factor. They you know, may not get as much attention as something like heart attacks or cancer, but the noise and light and vibration from some of the, the different types of infrastructure, whether it's the drilling phase, whether it's living near a compressor station or a processing plant, these all impact quality of life as well. Working within the affected communities, the Environmental Health Project has built trust with the families in the community, which in turn has given them access to critical health data to help shape the debate and present decision makers with reliable, science-based information they can use to adopt more protective policies. We do consolidate the health research that's coming out from academic institutions, from research organizations, to help better contextualize what we're seeing in communities and help residents who are experiencing certain impacts understand that there's a reason that they're feeling those impacts. But really being able to marry those two seemingly disparate worlds of academia looking at the issue and people actually living with these impacts and, and being able to combine both of those so that no matter the audience that you talk to, you really make sure that you've got a foot in each of those worlds. That's really important and really powerful, especially when you're talking to decision makers. But we also hope that it's 
empowering for the people who are living in frontline communities where they're not just waiting for someone to come and, and give them a report and then tell them what's happening, but, but they're actually actively involved in the process, whether that's drumming up awareness in the community or finding places to locate monitors, um, helping to educate other members of the community, helping to educate local elected officials. Um, that's something they're going to be able to do far more effectively than we will. Our expertise is public health, particularly as relates to shale gas development. And we are happy to bring that to the table, but it's far more effective for people who live in a community to do that grassroots outreach because they know who you need to talk to, the, the certain levers that you need to press to get people's attention. There's a lot of political noise these days about wanting America to be energy independent. Sometimes people forget that we're already there, that the United States is now the world's second leading exporter of natural gas, right behind Russia. And while the goal of being energy independent certainly gets the crowd roaring at a political event, it's only because the true cost of that energy independence is not widely understood. Powerful interests that control the information flow through advertising, public relations, fake nonprofits, not to mention influence at worldwide conferences about energy and sustainability, ensure that the public remains largely unaware of the cost in lives lost and permanently altered because of shale gas development. Very often, the argument comes down to this false dichotomy between jobs and health. But if you're going to make the economic argument, you have to look at the entire economic picture because there are negative economic implications of poor public health outcomes. You've got missed days of work, missed days of school, emergency room visits, hospitalizations, medication, um, people leaving an area because they don't want to live near XYZ type of shale gas infrastructure. So those are economic ramifications that are not being included in this equation that points to jobs. And we've seen recently with the building of the ethane cracker in Beaver County that the number of actual permanent jobs has been a fraction of what was originally projected. So what does the future look like for fracking in Pennsylvania or other states with similar problems? How do we balance the interests of energy independence with the right of all people to have a safe environment in which to live and raise their families? How can ordinary citizens inform the debate and create the political pathway to allow politicians to make the right choices? What do we do with an industry flush with cash and ready to use it to keep doing what they do, regardless of its impact on the health and safety of the public? The key to education is helping people to understand what these impacts are, what the real lived experience is for people in frontline communities so that we, we can make more responsible decisions. We can not just accept that there's going to be risk for people living in sacrifice zones but actually practice what we preach and say, look, we want a clean, healthy, equitable future for everybody. So we're gonna make sure that that happens. And that means not sacrificing the health of some or many in order to prop up fossil fuels, which we're trying to transition away from anyway.
Allison Steele is the executive director of the Environmental Health Project, a nonprofit organization based in Pennsylvania that's helping to raise public awareness by bridging the fields of scientific research and public health. If you missed any part of today's show, you can always hear it again on our website, greenstreetradio.org, or on any audio streaming platform, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this program, please tell your friends. We're trying to build our audience, and you can help. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, Allison Steele, our engineer, Reggie Johnson, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our webmaster, Allison Dunn, and our marketing director, Patricia Bridges. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.